0: Well, it is a real joy and a wonderful privilege to to be here with you. Uh, we pray often for you at Redeemer at our church back in California. And so to actually be here uh, physically with you, to be teaching this week at the Gulf Theological Seminary, and then to be part of this service and part of the graduation tomorrow is is a great, great privilege. So it's a joy to to be with you a joy to meet pastor dave so thankful for him and for this ministry your influence as a church goes all over the globe, and we want to thank you for your love for Christ. We also, as a church, have the wonderful privilege to come alongside Eric and Heather Zeller, and we are so thankful for them. So we just feel uh, partnership with you in the gospel of Jesus Christ, and so what a privilege and joy it is. Thanks for your faithfulness in the midst of this COVID season. It's a weird season, obviously, around the globe. But just to be here and to be gathered with you and to sing with you today is very much a joy to our hearts I knew my wife was smiling because she's just glad to to be here So thank you again for having us and for the privilege that I have this morning to open the word of God with you Eric just read if not turn back to to mark chapter 2 It's the healing of the paralytic there's a wonderful account in it, and I've been praying just to encourage you this day as I've been thinking over this day for a few months, and I was drawn to this passage in Mark chapter 2. It runs, as you heard read, down through verse 12, but starting in chapter 2, verse 1, down through chapter 3, verse 6, there are five clashes That Jesus had with the religious right the the Pharisees the scribes and the Herodians and this is the first clash It's contained in this Paragraph and it deals with the authority of Jesus Christ To forgive sins if I could put your eyes on one of the verses there to show you the thesis of this paragraph It's in verse 10 Chapter 2, verse 10. But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, rise, take up your bed and go home. That phrase there, that the Son of Man has authority to forgive sins, is really the crucial element of the text. And when you think about it, forgiveness of sins is the message of... Of the gospel is the message of Christianity. Somebody might say, What's the ultimate question in life? The ultimate question in life would be, How can man be made right with a holy God? And that is the message of 2 1 through 12. Let me get right into the text with you. I'd like to present this healing of the paralytic with five. Words just to kind of track as we go through five key words that demonstrate our Lord's authority to forgive sins. Let's follow along, and I love this account. We'll just begin with the word place, the place. Pick up the text in 2 1. It says, And when he returned to Capernaum, stop there just for a second. He's back, the text says, in Capernaum. I must just personally tell you out of all the places and the sites that I've visited in Israel... Capernaum, for some reason, maybe multiple reasons, has a very special place in my heart. You walk into that town, and immediately there on the left is still the foundation stones of the temple. Right across from the temple in Capernaum is the house of what they would say was Peter's mother-in-law, where part of this account took place. But here's the place. Jesus is in Capernaum. In fact, if you look back in chapter 1 of Mark, in verse 21, it says there that they went into Capernaum. So he is in Capernaum in chapter 1, he leaves it, but he he comes back. In fact, if you look at chapter 1 in verse 39, where it says there that he went throughout all of Galilee, preaching in their synagogues, and casting out demons. And so he had a wonderful ministry there. In fact, look back down at chapter 2, verse 2. It says that when he returned to Capernaum after some days, it was reported that he was home and so he's back in Capernaum and look at the text it says many were gathered together so that there was no more room not even at the door and he was preaching the word to them and so he had been in Capernaum he leaves to greater Galilee and he comes back into Capernaum and they get the reports of the Lord Jesus Christ that he's back He's back in this home. And so people begin to flood to this home because word's out that he has come back into this into this area, into this place. This shouldn't surprise us. Just, just think for a moment out of the text. Look back at chapter 1 in verse 28. Here's what he was doing in that ministry. It says in 128, at once, his fame spread everywhere throughout the whole surrounding region of Galilee. I mean, he was becoming very well known because of his ministry. Look down at chapter 1 in verse 32. It says, that evening at sundown, they had brought to him all who were sick and or oppressed by demons. And the whole city was gathered at the door and he healed many who were sick with various diseases and cast out many demons and he would not permit the demons to speak because they knew him. And so his fame was spreading. In fact, if you look down again at one 45 it says he healed the the leper the man with leprosy and he went out in 145 and began to talk freely about it to spread the news so that jesus could no longer openly enter a town but was out in desolate places and the people were coming to him from every quarter so his fame had spread and word is back now that he's back at home. If you could just picture with me just for a moment, he's at a house and the place is packed. In fact, it's so crowded that the text said that there's no longer even room near the door. And look at the text in 2-2. It tells you what he was doing. It says this in 2-2, at the end of 2, he was preaching the word to them. Uh, The ESV uses the word preaching, but it's the Greek word laleo. He was speaking the word to them in this crowded house, and he is giving the very gospel. That's the place. But secondly, there's a paralytic that arrives on the scene. Look at verse 3. It says, they, plural, came, bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. So you picture this place, it's packed. They're bringing into this place, so they're coming into this home, and this man is a paralytic. We can understand from the text that he lay motionless. His muscles do not move. Most likely he is a quadriplegic. And of course in those days there were no wheelchairs. And so he must be carried. And the text says that if you can just picture this pallet or this bed-like structure, they're carrying him by four men. In fact, look at the text again in verse 4. It says, "...they could not get near him because of the crowd." Uh, I mean, what what went through their mind? They must have walked some distance. They're coming into this home. They could see that from this home, there's no more room, even near the door. Jesus is teaching. He's speaking the word to them. The word's back. He is back. The word's out. He's back. And hope finds this place in a paralytic's heart. But they come to the house. They can't get in. And so the Bible says they go up to the roof. They go up in verse 4 to a stairway. And look what the Bible says in verse 4. It says they removed the roof above him. You just got to put yourself in that setting. The room is packed. They can't get in, and in these Palestine homes, usually around the side, there would be a stairway. They carry this guy, the paralytic, up the stairway. They get on top of the roof of that house, and it says here in the text, they begin to tear the roof apart. It says they begin to dig an opening in it. Now, you would say, I, I, I doubt that would be uh, possible here, I would agree with you, but in those times, and if you've been to Israel, it's a very, very hot climate, it would have been possible in that time. The roofs in those days were made by laying beams three feet apart from each other, and they went from wall to wall sticks were laid across if you will the beams then they would take kind of this thick coating uh, black matting material it was made of burnt clay and and then they would lay it and make the roof so here's what's happening the house is packed They can't get in the door. They ascend up the stairway and somewhere in these men's mind of the four, they begin digging digging and opening. Can you imagine if you were in the home what that scene would look like? Just think if you're sitting here and all of a sudden you see tearing and ripping and digging and the sunlight begins to appear and maybe people are beginning to shout, maybe especially if it was in fact Peter's mother-in-law and it was her house. You You might even ask what was Jesus doing in the midst of this? Did he continue teaching? I don't know. But, but usually a rabbi would sit in the, in the middle of the home with chairs ascending around in a circle. And so what happened is after they, bit, you know, dug an opening, it says in the scripture that they let down the pallet on which the paralytic lay. Now how they let down that pallet, we don't know, but I think we would think that they didn't just drop it, Right. You would think that those four men maybe were somewhat equipped with ropes. And so as the middle of this teaching event where he is speaking the word to them, the roof comes apart and down presumably with ropes comes the, this man. Now, what's interesting is, have you ever noticed this? Look at 2.5. How would you respond to that? Jesus, it says in verse 5, saw their faith. Now, to me, that's interesting. I bet you most people were bothered. I bet you most people thought, hey, the the, the master teacher is teaching, and what are these people doing? But as they drop this paralytic, and the prince and the paralytic meet, Jesus sees something different than often how we view things. He saw their faith. In other words, faith removes any obstacle. I think it's entirely possible that the faith of the paralytic was also the faith of the friends as well. In fact, it's interesting. What would you have done? I'm asking my own heart. Would you have gotten scared? Would you have maybe uh, chickened out? Would you have started digging and then think, man, I'm out of here. We can't go on with this. But I want you to know Jesus saw their faith and their faith persisted and it moved them to display the paralytic before Jesus Christ. And then you have... Other statements in the scripture where, daughter, your faith has made you well, Mark chapter 5. Mark chapter 10, the blind beggar, Jesus said, go, your faith has made you well. And so their faith led the four to a very, very great risk for their friend. So there's a place, Capernaum. There's a paralytic laid in the lap of the Lord Jesus. Thirdly, there's a pardon there's a pardon. Look again at the text. A massive, epic, bold statement. Jesus saw their faith and he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are, what? Forgiven. I, I, I mean, I think sometimes we read that and we, we, we know that it says that, but it is a bold, outrageous statement. Okay? In fact, there are some people who think the statement somewhat cruel. I mean, here is a paralytic carried presumably on a pallet or a bed or a stretcher. He comes from some place in Capernaum. He comes for the healing of his body. And Christ says to him, Son, your sins are forgiven. And and when he said, son, your sins are forgiven, the, the text is saying this, it is a very positive declaration of the fact. In other words, meeting his deepest need, you would agree, meeting his greatest need, he said, son, your sins are driven away. And the idea, the word there, forgiven, is what we call in the emphatic position. In other words, it reads this way, forgiven are your sins. And it's put in the present tense. And the thought would be forgiven this very moment, your guilt is gone. Forgiven this very moment, your burden is lifted. Forgiven right now as you come into my lap, if you will, I give you a full pardon. Listen, Redeemer, think about this just for a moment. Forgiveness of sins is God's greatest gift because it meets man's greatest need. Sin itself is a transgression of God's law and it defiles us. It defiles God's image in man. It stains our soul. It stains it with Satan's image. Sin is utter rebellion. Against God it is ingratitude Towards God it is incurable by man himself And it affects the scripture tells us the total man it affects our body it affects our mind It affects our soul it affects our spirit it brings men and women under the dominion of Satan it brings them under the wrath of God It subjects men to trouble and to emptiness and to a lack of peace, and I would say even to eternal hell. What a thought here. And because of this horrific condition, is not the greatest news, I'm asking you, Redeemer, is not the greatest news in all of the world, the forgiveness of your sins? I mean, here lies the power of the gospel, the pardon of all your sins, and so there's a place, there's a paralytic, there's a pardon, but fourthly, there's a problem. So what, what could be the problem? Well, it's in the text. Look at it in verse six. He, after he gives that declaration, son, your sins are forgiven. Now some of the scribes were sitting there questioning, "What? Well, not out loud, but in their hearts, why does this man speak that way or speak like that? He is blaspheming who can forgive sins But God alone and so here's the problems. It's the problem. It's the scribe. It's the phd if you will of religion and although the room was so crowded uh, That most were pressed outside. I, I this is my mind I'm sure these dignitaries were sitting in their place of honor I'm sure as they sat there, they were wearing their suspicious hats, if you will, ready to pounce on the Lord Jesus Christ. I think in this portrait here, the scribes are the real paralytics spiritually. My, my thought from the other gospels is that they sat there smugly. I don't even wonder, it doesn't say, if they even got up when the paralytic was lowered. And instead of love from these men there was indifference. Instead of faith, if you will, a debate arose. And they're filled with envy. They're filled with jealousy. They're filled with pompous pride. And Jesus, I would say, sensed it, and no doubt the crowd did also. You say, well, what were they thinking in their hearts? Well, it's in the Bible. It's the next verse. Look what it says. Here's what they were thinking It it just says it It says why does this man Speak like that He is blaspheming Who can forgive sins but God alone And when you just think of that word blasphemy That's the worst sin in religious life And the question came Who can forgive sins but God And, And that would be true Is it not? I mean, it's a true statement. Only God himself has the prerogative to forgive sins. It tells us that in Exodus 34. Who forgi- it speaks of God who forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin. We know that. Psalm 103 in verse 3. Who pardons all your iniquities. You say, well, what happened next? Look at verse 8. Immediately... Somewhat frightening, I think. Jesus, perceiving in their spirit that they questioned within themselves, said to them, why do you question these things in your heart? Stop there. See, although they could master the letter of the law, they could even in this sense hold their tongue. But the problem was they couldn't hold their hearts. The heart reader was there. In fact, Jesus, it says in John 2.25, didn't need anybody to bear witness about man's heart. He knew what was in man's heart. He searches the heart, it says in Samuel. He understands the thoughts and the attentions does God and does the Lord Jesus Christ in every heart. So he asked this question. Look at it in verse 9. Which is easier to say to the paralytic? And I'd ask you, which one? What would you say? Your sins are forgiven or to say, rise, take up your bed and walk? I mean, what would you say? Which which one is easier to say, your sins are forgiven, or rise, take up your pallet and walk? I mean, I suppose if we're just talking theologically, that can only happen in the case of a sovereign God in both case, cases, right? But I suppose it's easier To make the pronouncements of the forgiveness of sins than to provide a proof that the man's sins have been forgiven by his ability to walk. I mean, in one sense, the miracle is more difficult from the scribe's perspective because it must be proved. Jesus said your sins are forgiven, and so they're thinking, how is that proved? And it brings us to just the last feature here. Look what he said in verse 10. But that you may know that the Son of Man, Jesus said, has authority to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. Think just for a moment at that time, right there in that house, the credibility of his entire ministry, The credibility of his entire message would result in the outcome of that command. But he said, in order for you to know that I have authority to forgive sin, that you cannot see, Jesus did what they could see. Look at it in verse 12. It says, after he gave them that command, he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all. And we sang this song earlier. It says there, they were all amazed and glorified God saying, we have never seen anything like this. I don't know if you can put yourself back into that position, but imagine his friends on the roof. What was taking place? I mean, were they just, ah! You know, they were just... Imagine the maybe the smug Pharisees in the room. Here it says they were amazed. Luke says they were seized with astonishment. Literally, they were out of their minds. Matthew, in his gospel, says that they were filled with awe, which is phobia. They were filled with fear. And that's the word that we get from it. And I like how Spurgeon said, he said, I, I think I see him, Spurgeon said, the great preacher. He sets one foot down to God's glory. He plants another one down to the same note. He walks to God's glory. He carries his bed to God's glory. He moves his whole body to the glory of God. And he shouts, he sings, he leaps to the glory of God. You you say, let's come back to this what what's the what's the point here i think it's one but it's profound is jesus christ has the authority to forgive your sins amen he has the authority to forgive your sins and so he does what can't be seen the internal work by making this man rise and walk. Listen, this passage clarifies his identity, or shall I say his deity. Forgiveness of sin, is it not, is the exclusive right of God. Therefore, Jesus Christ is God. And if I could just take a moment with you What was the greater miracle? Think with me as you go home, as you go into your small groups this week. Was the greater miracle the healing or the forgiveness of sins? How would you answer that? I mean, I think you would agree with me that the greater miracle is what? Is the forgiveness of sins. I mean, certainly the paralytic went home walking, but far more important than walking He went on to live a life and then passed away and far more important than the miracle as huge as that was for him was his pardon before God. Listen, Redeemer. Gone was his shame. Gone was his guilt. Gone was his bitterness. His body would one day be laid into the ground but spiritual life would rise to last forever. And so I'm asking as I was praying even today, do you have the forgiveness of sins right now? Jesus Christ, in the power of the gospel, has the right, has the authority to forgive all of your sins and take it all away. This is the testimony of Scripture in Micah 7.18. Who is a God like you who pardons iniquity. Only God can do that. Micah, later in 719, speaking of God, says, you will cast all their sins into the depths of the sea. Jesus Christ forgives sins, does he not? A few years ago, I was in Italy, in Rome, and... I didn't know that I was there at a special time in a special place, and I was walking in one of the massive basilicas. Massive if you've been there. And I noticed there was some construction taking place on a basilica door that would have probably been as large as this whole window frame. And what they told me is that it was the year of Jubilee. In this particular religion. I said, Well, what's the year of Jubilee? And they said it comes every 25 years, except this particular pope called a year of Jubilee after seven years. You said, Well, what do they do at the year of Jubilee? They take all the the padded wood, if you will, that boarded up the door, and they removed it. And in this case, they removed it after seven years and then the door opens for people to come in. You say, well, how many people would come in at the year of Jubilee? Well, you can imagine how many people would come in. Millions would come in. And you say, well, why would they come in? They would come in because they taught at the year of Jubilee that if you walk, and this is the truth, if you, let's say here's the doorway entry, if you walk through the door, you have the forgiveness of all your sins. And so there were people streaming in by the millions to release their guilt, to assuage their guilty conscience, to get rid of all their sin. All they had to do was walk through the door and all their sins were forgiven. And you know that that's nowhere in the Bible. The only way that you can have your sins forgiven is through the power of the life and death of the Lord Jesus Christ. When that paralytic was dropped into his lap, he does have the authority to say, son, your sins are forgiven. Listen, I, tra- I pray that you, you know that power that you understand when it says in the book of uh, psalm in psalm 32 when it's speaking it says how blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven whose sin is covered let me just ask you is your sin covered children who listen to my voice is your sin covered not asking about your mom not asking about your dad not asking about your grandparents some of you have wonderful tradition I'm asking if you've come to your knee and come to the place where you've cried out to Christ who alone has the authority to forgive your sins you've got to understand that work it says in Isaiah that I even I am the one who wipes out your transgressions for my own sake and I will not remember your sins and I will remember your sins no more do you know that power I could tell you about a young man that I knew who was 14. And I knew that young man well because it was myself. Hmm. And I'd been listening to great Bible teaching for about five years in my life. But I I felt like Christian in Pilgrim's Progress with a massive burden on my back. And I, I didn't really know how to shake it. And I don't actually think I wanted to get rid of it. But the guilt was killing me. I mean, I, I, I might have been a little weirded as a teenager. Because there were times when I was 13 years of age. I had absolutely no hope, no assurance if I died where I would go. And so I would get to stoplights in California, in the city I grew up in, in Canoga Park. And it would turn green and I couldn't cross the street. So why couldn't you cross the street, Scott? Because I was afraid if I crossed the street I would get hit by a big bus and die. So then it would turn green to red and then I'd be safe again and I was dribbling my basketball. And then it turned green again and I didn't have confidence to, to, to cross the street and I was just so fearful all my life. And then by the time I was 14 I began to doubt my salvation. What would happen to me if I died? And all I can tell from my heart to yours is I was miserable. I used to think about it once a month. Then it became once a week. And then it became every day I didn't know what to do with the burden on my back. And I was absolutely miserable until the Lord, by the Holy Spirit, sent into my life the one verse out of the book of James For whoever, you know it, whoever keeps the whole law and stumbles at one point, he's become what? Guilty of the whole thing. And it was like a divine arrow came into my heart and I went into my room that night. I bowed on my knee because I knew that Jesus Christ was the only one who can give me forgiveness for the burden of guilt and sin and transgression that I carried. Listen, I promise you, what he did for me, he could do for you, and only Jesus Christ has the authority to do this. Amen? Amen. Why don't you bow your head with me? Father, I just pray. I I just, just for a moment, maybe as your head is bowed, do you have this forgiveness? Do you know this sweet joy? Do you know the power of the gospel, that Jesus Christ came and lived a righteous and holy life, fulfilled all of the law's demands, and died on the cross, went into the grave, was raised on the third day, ascended into glory, and he conquered death? Have you you had your sins transferred to the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ? Have you bowed your knee to him? We're going to sing in just a moment in Christ alone. And it truly is Christ alone. If you're a believer here, and there's many of you who are believers, then as you put your head to the pillow tonight, you just ought to be so thankful that Jesus Christ took all your sins that as far as the east is from the west, he buried your sins into the deepest part of the sea. And if you've not come to Christ, then I pray that today would be the day. Listen, we have a wonderful, merciful Savior. We have a wonderful gospel. And here it is. God sent his son to step in your place, to, to die in your place. To take your sins. And the only way that you transfer your sins to him is to cry out to him by faith. Jesus in Mark 2.5 saw their faith. If they just could get to Jesus. Listen, if you've trusted him, then walk in the newness of life knowing that. But if you're here and you're a guest or maybe you've been coming for weeks or months... How you come to Christ is through faith in him. You repent of your sin. You believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. And he promised to wash away all your sins and to give you the hope and the joy of eternal life even now and in the life to come. Father, I pray, would your spirit work in every heart thank you for this next song. May we sing it with all of our heart because of the uniqueness of the Lord Jesus Christ. We ask this in his name. Amen.